Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Poddleters. Thank you so much for your patience in me getting this live episode up. I know that it's been a bit of a while and there's been a bit of a disruption, but my laptop's been broken and because we ended up going for two hours, it's quite a long one. So what I've done is I've split it into two parts. So this is part one of why we should stop apologising with Scotty and Shah. I really hope you enjoyed the episode and I will see you very soon for part two. Hello. Are you guys all doing well? Are you excited? I'm a little bit nervous. <laughs> I'm stressed. I'm going to be really sweaty under these lights, so please do forgive me. I did do my makeup three times. Um, I so. thought they might give us a round of applause. Oh, I know, actually. so true. Coming out there. Thank you so much. Uh, so welcome to the first ever Adulting Live, hopefully the first of many to come in the future. I'm really excited about the two guests I have with me tonight. I picked people who are just as chatty, fabulous and extra as I am, I hope. Um, and as you know, this season of Adulting, the question is why? And tonight's question is, why should we stop apologising? And so I'm going to introduce my two guests and get them to tell you a bit about themselves. Round of applause, please. Yeah. So I am Shah Elise. I am the founder of an online platform called Girls Will Be Boys, where we basically pose the question, is it always binary with regards to gender? And we um, direct and produce short films around gender. So the first one was about women that shave their hair. Um, and I'm also a public speaker. Um, here I am. <laughs> and I also do a bit of modelling on the side. Mm-hmm. <laughs> No pressure. <laughs> I'm also a model. <laughs> okay, bitchy. <laughs> My name's Scotty. I'm an artist. I largely make uh, like theatre shows and big performance pieces uh, um, that are about the things that we often don't like to talk about around the table. So it's stuff often like class, sexuality, sex, ageing, uh, radical right-wing politics, you know, all the soft stuff. <laughs> um, and then often I'm called and I have a difficult relationship relationship with this, an activist, because uh, I work with communities, usually working class communities across the UK and Ireland, and looking at ways of discussing the stuff and austerity, particularly. Amazing. Well, thanks so much for coming, guys, again. So what we want to talk about tonight is, I think a lot of time we talk about how we're really bad at giving apologies. I'm quite bad. I was being a bit mean to my, my boyfriend earlier. Sorry, guys. Um, but what we're actually going to talk about tonight is not apologising. It's about standing up for times when actually we need to recognise our power and realise that we don't need to send emails that go, oh my God, hi, I hope this is okay. You haven't paid me for a year. Don't worry. But <laughs> just wondering if you wouldn't mind, it would actually be great because I can't afford to live. That kind of thing, which I think we do quite a lot. So I'm going to ask you guys, 
what's something that you've recently stopped apologizing for? And mine would be um, when I turned 18 around that time, I realized I was going to stop apologizing for having normal boobs and just stop wearing a bra. Because I feel like as a woman, you're brought up to feel really apologetic about your body, especially if you don't have like fake breasts, which stick up and look to the sky. Mine just point in whatever direction they want to go. And I learned to be like, okay, that's fine. And that's something I feel like I've stopped being apologetic for uh, recently. What about you guys? Um, probably just existing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I feel like I, I got to a point where I was like, just, I felt comfortable in who I was and, well, who I am. And I just didn't feel like I needed to apologize for taking up space in any mm. capacity. Um, it's like that thing, like there's loads of posts going around that are saying about stop apologizing, um, for existing in like certain spaces that mm. you belong to be in kind of thing. So I think I just realized that, yeah, I didn't need to apologize for being in a certain space, regardless of who I was telling me I didn't need to be there. And I'm, I just, I'm allowed to exist. So yeah, Actually. probably that. Yeah, I think similarly, uh, I spent uh, a lot of time making work about fatness. And uh, there was a moment within that where I stopped apologising for my fat ass not fitting into chairs a little bit like this one that's on stage today. Oh, no. no, but like, I felt like I had to apologise when I got on a plane and I was like, do you have an extender belt? Just because the way that people it, like react about your body when you've got a fat body makes you feel like you have to be apologetic for it. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily that I feel like I inhabit a body that's always been apologetic. It's, I've been made to apologise for it. Uh, you know, like I think fat people people are really great at choreography because we're constantly thinking about like the next turnstile that we have to get through and how we might like <laughs> lambada through it sideways and <laughs> try to do it whilst being stealth as well because people don't want fat people to be visible um but that's been a, like a really long journey mm. of like not apologizing I think more timely is I've started to realize I don't have to be apologetic for being a socialist uh, and sometimes I can be a shit show a, a word I can't even say a shit socialist as well I can be complete within that socialism um i think slowly it's felt like particularly on online communities when we talk about politics to talk about socialism is we've adopted a very american um attitude towards socialism as if it's a bad thing as if someone's being robbed of something when actually what it means is like we're going to distribute it in a fairer way mm. um and so i feel like, you know, in a couple of days, we'll stop being able to take applications for people to be able to vote in the general election. And I'm going to start to become less apologetic about socialism, I think. That's great. I actually... Sorry. Oh, a <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to interrupt your boot. Oh, my God, I'm apologising again. I actually was going to apologise. I'm being awful. Because I have read, read Sophie Hagen's Happy Fat and I should have registered that potentially you might need a different chair. So... I'm awful. But you didn't design the chair. That's You're not true. an awful person. Like, <laughs> well, <and> it, <laughs> yeah. I don't know <laughs> But no, it's like, it's, it's the world. It's the world that's saying you need to be this size mm. to, to be in this space. And when I say this space, I don't mean literally in the space that we're recording this. I mean, in the world, um, you know, there's a reason. Capitalism is sort of the reason because it wants to make you smaller so mm. they can fit more people on a plane. Mm. I think we've all made reference to the way that, our, that we physically fit into the world and apologising for that. And I think coming up to Christmas, it's quite a pertinent conversation because usually this is around the time when people will be telling you, oh, you might gain weight, be really careful around the quality street, don't have too much, go for an extra walk. And I think that was one of the first times, as you say, like feeling liberated to be within your physicality without feeling like I used to apologise or not even apologise, but I would tell people I was fat before I met them when I was younger because I felt if I said it, they couldn't say it back to me. And that was a way of feeling apologetic about my state and not like 
thinking that I could just exist as I was. And I feel like, especially on the Instagram world, where I'm sure some of you might have found me, that is something that goes on a lot. Feeling like we, I always say as women, but anyone that's got any kind of intersection of non-privilege will recognize that you constantly feel aware of yourself not being the perfect paradigm of what society wants you to be. And that's basically what this episode is going to try and help us shed that layer of shame because it's what we're apologizing for is our own shame which isn't our fault it's society did that make sense yeah Yeah. good (laughs) um do you have anything to add about this when it comes to so your discussion lot we talked about this the other night when we're out but about gender and sexuality is something which again is thrust upon us so then you might feel a bit shameful and awkward when you suddenly think oh i don't know if i deviate slightly away from this thing that i've been given Mm. How does it, when you were coming up with your work, what was it that drove you to look at the way that gender, because your brand is called Girls Will Be Boys, Mm -hmm. what drove you to get there? And how do you think that that is a shrugging off shame, that that work that you're doing? Uh, I think it can be hard when you're figuring out yourself, um, your sexuality, how you want to identify, just that um, you can feel not valid in whatever you are so I felt invalid as a bisexual for a long time because obviously like we're constantly being told that it's not like valid Mm. um but my work actually girls with boys started from a fashion blog because I never dressed like a girl um so it was kind of like playing off the androgyny and then obviously I shaved off my hair and then I was like I want to speak to loads of different women and find out their story and why they've done it and what their experiences have been with not fitting into um like being a woman do you know what I mean like as in like there's so much of your value placed in your hair and how you look and Mm. I just realized that when I shaved my hair I was like straight at the time but when I shaved my hair I was treated differently by men and I just wanted to see if that was a one-time thing or if if deviating away from what you're supposed to be in your assigned gender role is happening to everyone else. Mm-hmm. So that's why I explored it with, oh my God, she's bold. Um, and then just with the way that I dress and stuff anyway. And then obviously I came out and stuff and then I was exploring that. I just feel like I'm just constantly like, oh, what's going on here? <laughs> like, mm. There's so, a yeah. constant coming out though, right? It's like, you yeah. don't just come out once. It's just like, you're constantly having to like own those identities because yeah. the world is constantly reading you as one thing mm-hmm. and, and pushing you into a space. Particularly with sexuality and gender where people will make the assumption first of what they think that you should be. Yeah. And then you have to apologise for being like, well, no, no, well actually, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm not. And then it just becomes awkward because yeah. of social codes where you're like, oh my God, I've got to tell this person about pronouning and that's going to bring up a whole thing or what if they're a turf? And then like, so it's like, <laughs> it just becomes like it's way bigger than what, it's just easier if we all just like wait for the cue yeah. to know or just to make the assumption that we're all just human and until that the, the moment comes when it's so desperate that you need to know someone's gender identity mm-hmm. that you do a pronoun round. But Love a pronoun. The irony yeah. was the last time Scotty came on my podcast, I thought I was being really woke and I was listing all of Scotty, like my privileges and then where Scotty had intersections. And at the end, Scotty was just like, you've just assumed my gender, my sexuality. On a thing where I thought I was being really woke, I was like, so... You're obviously homosexual. <laughs> You're a man. And he was like, um, actually, <laughs> thanks to differ. But, but also I really love the 1970s homosexual. I know. Well. Who's ever been called a homosexual past 1992? 
but we've got to be able I think we spoke about that yeah. in that episode where we spoke about actually we've got to be able to be slightly clumsy with each other it wasn't like you were saying you're a man and you're a dirty gay what you were actually were saying was oh I think you you're this and so this is what I've dreamt up in my head but we, we've got to be able to kind mm. of get to a point where we can be generous with each other as long as there isn't violence or attack behind it I feel is, and, and that's when I feel more generous with the emotional labour of being like well yeah. stop the clock let me tell you a couple of things yeah because I think and we just spoke about this in my last episode but this culture of wokeness and having to know the right thing to say can either put you on the back end of lots of firing so then you feel like you have to apologize or also keep you really silent and I think we shouldn't feel apologetic for making using the wrong terms obviously if they're really derogatory then that's not that helpful but if it was a genuine mistake and it's the first time you said it and someone tells you and you change it I think that's absolutely fine and I think we need to not be so fearful of saying the wrong thing because right now it's gone great I think it was amazing I think we all were becoming really woke and now we've just become quite arsehole which isn't it's like it's the spectrum's kind of gone the other way mm. Have you found this in your work to do with gender? And, like, what, what have you found on a professional level? Like, how have you found it to... Have you been pitching to anyone? I actually don't hang out with that many middle-aged, middle-class white men, which is great. Um, <laughs> but I don't know. I think professionally a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. Have, have you come across any barriers to work or access when you're trying to bring forward a conversation which is quite in the zeitgeist but also quite new to a lot of people? I think it's more so with when I'm doing work as in public speaking work, rather than girls will be boy stuff. Um, Because when it's public speaking, then it's me uh, entering situations as a queer black woman and being faced with um, being judged before I even open my mouth. And then when I do open my mouth, it's like, oh, she's Northern. And then there's like another layer of assumptions. And I just feel like... Um, I've had conversations before about, for example, white privilege to certain people and white fragility. And I've been met with, you know the whole, well, I just feel like I can't see anything right anymore. Like, what am I supposed to say? Mm. But then I'm always saying, people people won't judge you for just trying. You have to try. It's the same thing with, like, the pronouns. If you don't try, then you can't learn. And there's so many things that even I had to try um, before I would learn about it. So that's why I have Girls Will Be Boys, because I learn from talking to, for example, trans people or non-binary people because I'm not that myself. So I always say it's essentially passing the mic so that I can learn from it Mm. and not have, um, kind of not take away and expect emotional labor like a lot of people do expect of me sometimes. Mm. Um, So I think as long as you're willing to learn, then it's fine. Yeah, You have to put yourself in an uncomfortable position because systemically, like, it's going to be uncomfortable because that's the way that it is. And I guess because you're the one that's spearheading this new conversation, you've kind of got to be the forerunner. Yeah. You bring up, obviously, I'm white, posh, middle class, probably shut out, out my mouth at the beginning in case you didn't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> very privileged. Uh, but you talk about being Northern and, Scotty, a lot of your work is to do with class. And I think this is one of the intersections which a lot of people scurry away from talking about because, first of all, our politicians are all apparently coke-sniffing, very posh, white, middle class men. Um, and I think that class sometimes can be left out of the conversation interestingly especially when it, especially when it's talking about the white working class which is something that I've learned from Femi on my podcast because I think the left often fights for the visibly marginalized but I do think sometimes the white working class is a conversation which can get a bit murky yeah I think it can and I think there's good reason why there is um often 
fear around inviting the white working class, I say this as a white working class person, to the table because certain prolific fractures of that community that I belong to have turned to extreme right-wing politics. Um, So I've made a piece of work where I interviewed queer people that were members of the English Defence League because I was just a bit like, sorry, a a marginalised group has turned towards the English Defence League. Um, So they have EDL LGBT, collecting all the letters there. It's an actual thing. It's an actual... UKIP, LGBTQ. I mean, they've added the Q on. They're, you know, like so. It's it's so interesting how these um, like these politics can be adopted by other. Well, how marginalised groups can become adopted by these right wing groups to fuel this idea of like, well, actually, we're really nice people. Um, and yeah, so I'm currently touring a piece of work called Class, which is a show for the white middle classes. And only you'd love it. Uh, and <laughs> it's essentially um, me on stage talking about a. a Essentially, everything that happened to me in my life growing up in substandard social housing in North London and the legacy that that's had, and particularly feel like it's very poignant because we're coming into a decade of austerity, 130,000 preventable deaths because of Tory austerity. So it feels... It feels like this conversation uh, that feels very uncomfortable um, in a way that when I talk about it, people, uh, when I do the show, often people with privilege, the middle class or the upper classes that come to see the show, afterwards want to talk to me on Twitter about what they, what I'm supposed to do with their shame mm. and their embarrassment. Um, and, and I don't know, apart from asking people to start to think about ways of moving forward. Um, so, yeah, it is, it's, a, it's an uncomfortable conversation to have. It's uncomfortable to every night go out into, you know, like three, four hundred people and say the council, I watched the local council forcibly shaved heads of kids on my estate because of knit infestation. It's a very difficult thing to do that. Um, but my therapist, oh yeah, hi, I'm in therapy. <laughs> my therapist, um, they're great because they say um, uh, this work and, and having these conversations, and I think we can all take bits from this, right, is that the aim of it is a little bit like kink and BDSM. So when they said that, I was like... <laughs> <laughs> they said, the, the idea is that what you want to do to, the, to yourself and to the audience is to hurt them a little bit for gratification, but you don't want to harm them or yourself. And so I feel like when we're having these conversations, thinking about that has been really helpful in terms of self-care. Um, <laughs> But I think it's a really interesting way that we can all, maybe perhaps all approach like having these difficult conversations as the person that listens to it, but also as the person that is, is performing mm. it or fronting it or being the person who's talking about it. Yeah, and your therapist sounds amazing. Um, but apart from that, I think that what's coming to the fore as we're talking, it's making me realise that a lot of our apologising either, either comes from someone else projecting shame onto us or us feeling our own shame. And actually all of my podcasts are kind of about trying to tap into what really makes it you and relinquishing these ideas that you have to be any kind of formatted version of yourself. Because if we all didn't walk around with like these little like imaginary barriers of like all these things that society tells us we have to be, we'd probably feel a lot more comfortable. We wouldn't have to apologise so much. I don't know if, if that makes sense. But what I'm I'm trying to say is that I think... Projection is a massive thing which can be really um, difficult to understand you're doing it. So, for instance, when I was younger, I might look at someone and be like, oh, I don't like them, not realising that what I didn't like about them was either they had something I wanted or they had something I didn't like about myself and then I saw it. 
And sometimes we think that the problem or the issue, someone watching Scotty's show is saying, this makes me feel really bad about myself. You're such a bad person, but it's, it's not. Scotty's holding up a mirror and that person is finally seeing how their actions or their own way of living impact someone else. There was a, there's a really great Guardian review of I my show it. as well. I loved it. I read that. It's so funny. <laughs> Which is like, I felt uncomfortable for an hour <laughs> and I'm an ally. And it's so interesting because we got to this space of allyship where actually you can only be an ally if you're spoken to in a nice way. Like, oh, I like you and I'm going to tell you some things in a really soft way. And actually, we do have to yeah. sit with some uncomfortable truths. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like the fact every time I've had a conversation with you, you're like, I'm completely plush. I really like, like come from like a really privileged background. And I really like that you own that up front because there is there should be shame in it. I think when often when I talk about class, I think folk from middle or upper classes think what I'm saying is, you don't deserve it. You shouldn't have it. What I'm saying is, can we all have it? <laughs> <laughs> We all, can we all live in that, that, that space? Yeah, totally. I completely agree. Um, so coming back onto what we were talking about with um, sexuality, you've just come out now, or do you think that coming out is a thing? I think now that I talk about this with my mum, because we find it really interesting. So I think we're of the generation where suddenly sexuality is on the table. But I think if you're like 16, 17 now, you just don't tell anyone. You just do whatever you want, which I think is really great. Mm-hmm. So one day you come home with a boyfriend, one day you come home with a girlfriend, one day you do have an orgy I don't know whatever it is um but do you think that uh, we were also talking about this it's interesting because you're 25 26 almost 27 oh blimey so two old. weeks I'm joking um and so I think our generation like, I feel like I think I'm really woke and know loads of stuff but actually I don't know if we're again trailblazing a bit for our generation and obviously people older than us might still find these conversations we're having a little bit of fronting these conversations around sexuality for you and your work what what do you feel like the reaction is to it do you think that is it because we're in this metropolitan, cosmopolitan bubble of London that everyone's like, super chill, babe, I'm pan, it's fine? Or do you think that it, it, conversations really are moving forward? Um, I think they're moving forward. When I sort of decided to date outside of my own gender, I, outside of the, you know what I'm saying, I'm bisexual. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> when I decided, yes, um, I realised that no one gave a shit. Like, yeah. literally, no one gave a shit apart from the people that I was dating. And then I had a conversation with my sister, because she's younger than me, she's 21 now. But I just remember that she had never came out to our family. I think I was telling you this mm. the other day, but um, I just remember when she was younger, I think she was about 16, and she decided that she'd wanted to go to Camp America for, like, the next summer. And my mum was like, oh, like, you never know, you might come back with a boyfriend. She was like, or a girlfriend. And mum's like, yeah, 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 or a girlfriend. And that was literally it. And then she's had girlfriends or she's slept with guys or do you know what I mean? So it was kind of, she taught me that um, I'd never even had to announce this whole, I don't like the idea of coming out because mm-hmm. um, I saw a quote from Monroe and it was like sexuality is um, an experiment and it's an experiment for everyone, whether you're straight, like you don't know until the first person that you, do you know what I mean? You're yeah. interested in. And I feel like there's this whole, because of like heteronormativity, that it's like you're supposed to be straight and if you're outside of that, it's not normal, but actually it's all just an experiment. So I feel like it's becoming as we're having more conversations about gender, more conversations about sexuality, that it's becoming more of a normal thing. Kind of like um, with pronouns, you just don't assume. You Mm. just ask if you need to know, but also it's none of your business kind of thing, unless you're dating them. 
But I just feel like it's a thing where you just don't assume one thing. Totally. Mm. And we were out for dinner the other day with our friend Florence, I'm sure you guys know who that is. And she just didn't use anyone's pronouns when she was talking about anyone, did she, for the whole yeah, dinner? Yeah, just So every person she said, which is an amazing skill to learn, mm -hmm. but it is quite throwing. But then I was like, I really, really want to start doing that. And it, all it is is just retraining your brain mm -hmm. to be accepting. It sounds like you've had an amazing experience with your sexuality and it hasn't been that shameful. Yeah, no, not at all. Even when I um, went on my first date with a woman, I was like speaking to my mum and then I was like, yeah, I went on a date last night. She was amazing, blah, blah, blah. And then she did call me the next day like, did you say she? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and then she was like, okay, cool, yeah. Mm. Amazing. Um, so it wasn't, I, I don't feel like I've faced, and also like, because of the stereotypes of having a shaved head, people were like sus anyway, before <laughs> I even knew. So it's like, okay, I guess it's fine. That's that's quite interesting because I know that Scotty, your relationship with your sexuality coming out and we spoke about it on the podcast before, but you had a very different experience. Would you mm. think that's because of the masculinity part of it or what Oh, I think, think so many things. I think class and masculinity definitely have a major hold on it. That's why I wrote a book and a play called Bravado, which is available now. <laughs> Um, uh, which kind of looks at um, what men did to my body over 10 years in the 90s. But I also think it's a, a, a time thing, a generation thing. Um, I grew up under a law invented by someone called Maggie Thatcher. Um, I, I like to say that because I'm aware that I've come into more rooms nowadays where people are like, who was Maggie Thatcher? And I'm like, children, get on Wikipedia. Um, <laughs> And uh, which was called Section 28, which prohibited any key worker or anyone who worked for local government, so a teacher or anything, from promoting homosexuality, which is kind of ludicrous, but it just was a way of making sure that you weren't able to reach any help or any support. So I grew up underneath that law, um, which I think was is which prevented me from seeing myself and to be and to be seen. Um, but I also had a really brilliant mum. Uh, so I had a very working class coming out story. I came out watching Jeremy Kyle because um, <laughs> there was like these gay people on the telly and my mum was like, I think they might be gay. And I was like, I'm gay. <laughs> Um, and I think, but brilliant people like that, uh, and like my mum, who made my straight white brother, who, uh, who's a Corbynista and a vegan, well, you know, like he's ticking some boxes, um, <laughs> like come out as het and um, straight. Oh, <laughs> yeah. really? Mum's like, so, you know, are you going to tell me what you are? My <laughs> <laughs> was like, I'm just, just, I think I'm a straight man, mum. <laughs> and my mum's like, well, that's fine. That's totally fine. Which I love because it's like, my mum was it's like, why this is expectation just on queer kids yeah. Yeah. to come out. I also recognised the language change in my mum as well, from a, a calling me a man and calling me a gay man to call me a queer person. And so, um, we, you know, like, I guess what I'm saying is, like, the more that we've got families, mm -hmm. you know, where we've got visibility in families, uh, that starts to soften, I think, um, yeah. the, the dominance of homophobia. Um, but also we've got to thank the political groups like Stonewall and for their sins and outrage who are two organizations that really like like have given a lot of equality law to queer trans and non-binary folk uh, even today yeah i think that your mum asking your brother is amazing mm. and actually shard the same to me she was like when did you know that you were a woman and i'd actually thought about it before and i was like i actually really do feel like i'm the most womany woman ever it's really funny because even though i'm such an ardent feminist i also have i'm really embarrassed that i love cooking and like love being really girly and i think i am just really feminine but i didn't know that really until i was like in my 20s like i was a girl i never really felt like i'm a woman i think these questions around gender and sexuality should actually be 
broached. Like, I think we should be asked or we should be told to question, but it should be on both sides. Mm. So it should yeah. be like, what what is it that you want? And not necessarily in that you have to give a direct answer, but I think that I always think about if I raise my children, it would always be with the idea that you can be a man, a girl, a woman, have a boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever you fancy kind of thing. And it's just that what your mum did is absolutely perfect, mm. kind of making us all question. I think not apologising for not knowing as well. I think with the coming out thing, if anyone here is questioning their sexuality or doesn't understand, there's no time limit or time frame. And as you say, it also might be that there's just... You're, you feel like you're totally straight the whole time and then one day someone of the same gender pops by and you're like, oh my God, I love you. What, um, can I do one of my typical, like, Scotty and Anoni having a conversation? Yeah. What makes cooking feminine? Feminine? Yeah. Because of bloody social constructs saying that women should be in the kitchen. Pow. So let's, like, put it in the bin and just say you like cooking. <laughs> I do. This I, is what I was kind of saying. I, I know. Was like, yeah. But when, when we say that we don't believe in uh, gender binaries and then there's like social stereotypes if we throw them all out the window then how can I sit here and say I'm a woman oh yeah do you know what I mean question. and then I'm just like going it's one of them things where it just never gets answered so it just goes round and round so I think if you got rid of gender constructs then you wouldn't have to ascribe to either being a man or a woman so I don't think you can have both really I think the reason that we have such stringent ideas on gender and wanting to so vehemently be the other one is because the social constructs are so in place does that make sense yeah. so I think that to be a woman is unfortunately like if you feel like you're a woman it is that you just ascribe to like those things it would be much better if you could be a man and love all of those things and still be a man but because of the way society is if you presented every single um kind of I idea of femininity people would just be like oh you're a woman think i think that? it's a tough one personally because i'm i'm just like but if we say like, for example, I'm not dragging you. Dragging. Like, <laughs> I love it. If, if you say that, like, I'm a woman, like, I love all of the woman things. I love cooking. I love this, that and the other. Then it's like, isn't that just enhancing the fact that this is what it is to be a woman? Like, those are the points of being a woman. Do you know what I mean? No, totally. I think I'm saying that in that the, my point with that exercise was, like, I didn't know that I, like, I, I just grew up and was like, oh, I'm a girl because I have a fanny and someone told me. Like someone said to my mum, you've got a daughter. And that was it. And I only sat back, back down one day and went, oh, no, I really feel like a woman. Like, I love all these things that are womany. Mm. So that's how I then decided, like, I, I just am, I like being femme. Sometimes, like, do you know what I mean? That was yeah. my, my understanding. of. I had a little question, like, am I totally fine? Step back. Do I want to be anything else? No, I'm fine. I'm good. And that was how I identified. But someone else's womany things could be totally different from mine because it's all going to be dependent on those previous structures we talked about before, like class, gender, race, et cetera. Mm. Not gender, that is the question, but... <laughs> yeah, I, I, where I sit with it, because I've sat around this and being like, oh, well, does it, how do you get to her? And then come to those dead ends in your head. Yeah. Um, I know quite a lot of, like, very ardent, radical people that are like, destroy gender, smash everything down. <laughs> it doesn't exist. Uh, and I, I love what that does, what that radicalism puts into our brains and where it, uh, and the questions that it puts. But actually, if someone wants to identify as a woman, I really haven't got a problem with it. Mm. What I'm asking for is that we just don't like look around a room and go, uh, this person has got these characteristics, yeah. so therefore I'm going to assign my own bullshit to them that we just be like as neutral as we can until someone goes yada 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 because you know i'm a woman and you're like oh like 
how you're a woman now fine <laughs> put that above your head I think I tweeted the other day actually as a dyslexic fag um, I, honestly I love I love self-identifying as a fag because it makes everyone in the room go oh my god which is great because I feel quite adamantly faggy and femme. Um, I was like, I've, as a dyslexic fag, I can often remember people's gender identities and pronouns and I can't often remember their name. True. <laughs> and, and that's the world yeah. I kind of want to live in. But also like checking in with people because people's identities change all the time. Yeah, I did that the other day. I checked in with my friend who is non-binary and they live in... Barcelona. And I just remember that when I first found out they were non-binary, this was before I really knew about non-binary, so I continued continued to call them he, him, refer to them like that. Um, and then I saw that they posted something on their story and they'd referred to themselves as she. So then I checked in with them and they were like, you know, like anything is fine. This was like last year. And then the other day I was just thinking about it and I just checked in with them again. And they were saying that actually because of um, the language, there's no they mm. pronouns in Spanish. So they use she, her while they're back home. But then when they come to London, they prefer they, them because that's what they sit more with. And I just think if you constantly check in to make sure, because people do change, like they change the way that they want to identify. And as long as you just keep, Obviously not every day, like, are you she her? Or like what you say? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, Identify every yeah, day now. Like, just because it is, because if we're saying it's fluid, it, it can change. Mm. And I think it's important to keep checking in as well and not feel bad if you get it wrong. Mm. Well, so when I got it wrong with Scotty and I called you a man and you were like, I don't know if I want to be a man. Like mm. that, what, the, it was not that he, him, it was the man. Mm. Could you explain for people, because sometimes I do feel like, because I'm saying that I feel like I'm such a woman, I sometimes don't, I'm like, I actually don't, I'm really lucky, I feel very cis. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So when you say that, I'm like, okay, why? Yeah. <laughs> so my stuff isn't about feeling non-binary or trans. And I like to make that very clear because it's not about an appropriation of those things which are really important. And so those voices need to be louder than mine. Um, it's about the fact that I'm, uh, you know, I'm sat here in a in a suit which is designed for a fat woman's body. It's marketed in the women's section. I only wear clothes that are marketed towards women. Um, and I am very effeminate. People on the telephone always misgender me. Um, and I have a difficult relationship with masculinity and men. I don't particularly like to be in the company of men mm -hmm. because I fear their potential because of the trauma and the stuff that's happened to me. And I think a lot of femmes um, can identify with the potential of masculinity. Um, and I hope we, we, we start to come and live in a world where that, that starts to fade out. Um, but that's the truth, that's the very honest truth, that I feel threatened, um, particularly if I'm on my own, mm -hmm. because often my fatness is the gateway for them to um, start on me. Mm. Um, and so for me, it isn't about um, any different uh, pronouns. I love um, b being called, like using they, them, and she, her. I love interchangeable pronouning. That works for me. I just don't feel like, you know, when you sat down, you're like, yes, I am a woman and these are my woman things. <laughs> if I was to sit down and be like, yes, I am a... <laughs> The, I'm, the nearest I can get to is like a big fat femme fag witch. Oh, my <laughs> God. Like that's kind of my nearest stuff. Um, and that's just, that's just the truth. But that has so been informed by the generations that are like 
are like younger than me. Like particularly like there's a brilliant uh, artist and activist called Travis Alabanza and they have oh, informed <laughs> all of my language um, to get me to this point to be like, this is how I feel. So I feel like it's always really good because sometimes we can market ourselves as whole people that like I came out of the womb and I was... Femme. Like, I've always known, like, with this complete thing. And actually, no, it's it's a kind of ever yeah. journey of coming out and mm -hmm. experimenting. And who knows where I'll be in five years' time. Amazing. Yeah. Thanks. So, sorry, next thing I want to talk about. We talked about, like, self-acceptance, ourselves and, like, who we are. But one thing I really want to talk about is money. Because I think we can get to the point where, like, I know who I am, this is what I do. But then it can be really hard to, especially someone that isn't your person I want to say wanker banker then I've said it now someone that works <laughs> in the city and like knows how much they want to charge I think money can be a really difficult one especially if you are someone that identifies as creative or working in these industries and one thing I've learned to stop apologizing for is knowing what I'm worth and knowing that I need to get paid and I want to get paid well and I think that that's something that really needs to come to the fore and especially in the new year that's going to be like my main thing it's just going to be money 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 because <laughs> we all need to get rich um so I don't know about you guys is this a conversation which you've learned to adapt to or are you still in the process of learning how to negotiate your monetary worth away from your self-worth because I think that's where the difficulty is like your job that you're doing is worth something but often we value it on our how much we think we're worth and those are generally like two very different numbers hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Is this a bit of a rogue question? I think it's easier for me to say what I'm worth in work mm. than like, um, because I struggle with like mental health. So it's easier for me to say in work, no, I'm worth this much for what I do and what I can provide, et cetera, than my like self-worth, which I don't know if that's weird that it's that way around, but I do feel like once I accepted my um, sexuality, it was like everything just fell into place and that I could do this public speaking and talk about my experiences of marginalization and my sexuality and all that kind of stuff. And then I was like, no, I know what I'm worth for these jobs that I'm doing. Mm. And I felt like I was, I just became, I mean, it might've helped that I then got management, but still I think I just flipped and all of a sudden I was just completely unapologetic. Mm -hmm. That's good. Yeah, with everything that's outward. I do think, no, I think that's amazing you got to that point because I always think basically what I meant there was I think we always undervalue our self-worth. I think yeah. it's really hard to have an, to see yourself as you are. It's that classic thing of like, you would never talk to your friends the way you talk to yourself and I think we carry that a mm. lot. So it's amazing that you've been able to separate, separate that from your work because often we then put that into our work and we're like, oh my God, that's like 10 pounds. That's fine. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> mm. And creatively, it could be a really, because it's like a minefield. You never know how much anyone charges or. Mm. Yeah. I think uh, I want to really encourage you to get rich <laughs> because uh, if the world goes in the way that I hope it does on uh, December 13th, I'd welcome uh, eight pounds extra from you uh, from oh, earning over 80,000. <laughs> um, I think money for me is a, a, a strange thing because I don't come from anything. So it burns a hole in my pocket 
I get paid, and I'm like, okay, how can we? What can we do? Like, what do we? Where do we go? What do we buy? Um, uh, and like, it's often about having fun and going out with partners, plural. Drop the poly card. Wow, she's even winner. Um, uh, being poly is expensive, everybody. Like, this is, this is the shit they won't tell you about polyamory on blogs. They'll be like, it's great, open communication, jealousy's a thing. They don't tell you how much money you need to be poly. Um, so money, like, doesn't have the same sort of material value to me. If I can pay, like, my way in the world, fine. But then I've got an agent, right? And then, because of course, like, you know, it's difficult talking about money and like working out what your worth is translated to. What is your worth on the radio? What's your worth on the telly? What's your worth on the stage? What's your worth as a, like a public person? So like, a, like a, then I see what my agent at the conversations, my agent has with people. I'm like, are you for real? You want to charge people that for me to turn up for 10 minutes to say, hello, I'm weird. Uh, <laughs> But like, and it's amazing what that the putting somebody in between you and mm. uh, that who then negotiates money does. It becomes silly. I've seen conversations start with there is no money, and my agent be like, "We've got you a thousand pounds," and I've been yeah. like, "That tells me so much not only about capitalism but about how untruthful and lie the, the lies that exist within the arts. Mm. This idea that's constantly perpetuated that there's no." money in the arts yeah no totally and I think I actually want to counter you a bit in not wanting to get rich so I was always had a funny relationship with wanting money and that I thought as a woman it's really crude to want money and I would always think like oh no no no, it's fine like I don't need to, I just want enough to get by but then I've been speaking to really interesting women in finance who are at the top of their game and they're like the women that have money put money back into the economy like 40% more than men ever would and if we had more distribution of wealth within people like us the everything would be better, obviously, because the wealth is hoarded by people like Tories that don't know what to do with it and just I don't what do they do with it? I well, don't they know. gave five and a half million pounds <laughs> last week to the Tory party to um for their uh, public campaigns. Yeah. So that's what they do with it. So it's absolute waste. We could have a massive party with five million pounds. <laughs> Can you imagine? It'd be amazing. Um but yeah, learning how to want money has been like a really obviously I don't want to be a billionaire. Literally billionaires should not exist. They're fundamentally everything about them is wrong. But wanting money, I think, is really important. And recognising, like, oh, my favourite parable, which I think I've told you about three times now, but I'm going to tell you again. No, it's so good. It's so good. <laughs> so I always used to feel this way about, like, with Instagram as well, your work's kind of weird because on the face of it, it looks like you're getting paid to post a photo, but it's so there's so many more things that go into that. It's your years of experience, you're following, whatever. So there's a story about someone has a massive castle, probably a Tory, and <laughs> there's a leak in the castle. So they get a plumber in. The plumber literally whacks one pipe. He's in the building for, like, five minutes, and he goes, that's 10 grand. And they're like... You've been in here for five minutes. I'm not going to pay you 10 grand. And he's like, you're not paying me to hit that pipe. You're paying me for my 20 years of experience for knowing exactly which pipe to hit. And if you'd hired any other plumber, it would have taken them all day or whatever. And I was like, that's such a fascinating way of putting it because it's so true. The self-worth thing that your management can see and also the 20% that they want to take is um, <laughs> them going, you just see the surface level work that you're going to do and you're going to have imposter syndrome, which is something we'll come on to as well, where you'll feel like, I'm going to be shit anyways, so just give me 50 quid and I'll do it and I'll run away. They will see you as you are, plus VAT, 20%. <laughs> the parable doesn't work though if you're a member of the royal family does it, it no just it, you know if you've got the castle and you've got a leak you then ask the taxpayer for 363 million pounds and then you say yes <laughs> and also this podcast does not apply to Prince Angie who really should apologise I'm just mm. going to put that out there mm. <laughs> that, was, that was quite good okay. 
So back to imposter because I think it's something that we should definitely talk about. Um, it's exactly what I went back to at the beginning, that first thing of like sending an email and being like, oh my God, hi, hope this is okay. And actually Matt, my boyfriend who was here, was he's really well versed and just being really to the point and that might be because he's a white middle class man um, who's just been taught that like everything he does he pretty much will get listened to whereas a woman you kind of want to fit yourself into spaces and be as pretty and as cute and as sweet like I pretend I'm stupid all the time it actually works quite well because you get away with a lot of stuff and also people do more stuff for you but in a work environment (laughs) it's actually really unhelpful so I've learned to just send emails that are so like hi this is this this is that and the amount of respect you get is amazing and you shouldn't feel apologetic for that but it feels so alien and foreign when you first start doing it every email I go hope this is okay does that make sense and literally all I've said is like it's 300 pounds does that make sense do you understand what I mean thanks so much bye have you guys felt this have you come out of your imposter syndrome or is it ever present Oh, it's ever present. Mm. I think um, definitely being black and being a woman, it's like I'm constantly told that, like I said, I'm not supposed to be in certain spaces and this, that and the other. So sometimes it does creep in. But then I feel like sometimes I abuse the fact that I step into a room, I look intimidating because I've got a shaved head, I look confident. So sometimes I'll kind of like abuse that fact and be like, actually, yeah, like I am confident, I am like intimidating, give me all that money. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So sometimes I feel like I can use that, but then I do suffer with depression. So sometimes I just, you know, all the little chemicals in my brain are like, oh no, you don't. So mm-hmm. then imposter syndrome does creep in. And I feel like it's something that you have to keep. It's I just feel like it's not something that we should aim to get rid of, but something we should aim to manage better mm-hmm. because I don't think it will go away because especially the more success you get, the more you'll be like, do I actually really deserve this? Or did I literally just fluke my way like mm-hmm. to the top? Um, and especially when you're constantly being told that you're not supposed to be there. So I think I've just learned to manage it better and kind of just um, pretend that I am this thing that everybody tells me that I am anyway. I think it's so fascinating. So that, like, we haven't really talked about the intersection, which we definitely should, but that your people's assumption about you is that you're really confident, that you're rude, and that you're aggressive, whatever. And mine are that I'm going to be really, really sweet, really thick. And, and like, those two things aren't true of either of us. And it's so hilarious, as we're saying about projections and assumptions, mm. that we walk into a room and people think both of those things, actually, we're probably quite similar in personality, yeah. but they think two completely disparate mm. things yeah. just of how we look. I get um, aggressive and bullshit. Mm. Whereas if I was educated and have letters after my name, they'd say articulate and well argued. I can't imagine anyone thinking you're aggressive. Oh, all the time. Really? All the time. And, and it's in real subtle ways as well, like in reviews or in language that commissioners use with me. You know, I largely exist in the arts where most people who commission me, their name is uh, a sound that I've never heard. It's like, <laughs> come on, Anastella. Uh, which, and they're like the poshest, they're just like the poshest person you've ever met. And so there is a natural distance between you and because you're talking about making a piece of work about your class trauma and you just know that they, they really don't understand why it's important to make it. Um, and so being, being in those rooms can be difficult. But um, my imposter is totally class-based. It's totally that I feel like somebody, because I didn't go to university, got tracked out of school when I was 14, proper council kid, that I constantly feel someone's going to tap me on the shoulder and be like, you used the wrong word, you're stupid. Or you um, don't know what you're doing and it's really apparent in this piece of work that you've made. And like, th- there's a fear 
Mm. There's a fear that you, um, you, and then when you start to talk about class or at any of your intersections, um, that you then think, I'm now the representative of the whole body of people who are working class. Uh, and, that's a, and that's a tough thing because you don't want, you're, you're not trying to take up that space, but you're trying to talk about that mm. experience. It's really interesting that you say that you feel like your class is what makes people think you're aggressive because one of those violent things which I used to do, not actively, but using really long words, which I do have a vocabulary where I can just whip out, I can't think of anything to say now, but long words. And <laughs> that is kind of violent because I would used to use it, especially on Instagram. So say if someone commented something and they were like, you're ugly, I'd be like, it's Y-O apostrophe R-E. And... It, that's actually why well, you didn't even spell that right, did I? But they <laughs> showing off about my language. Um, but that was me, like it's punching down because I'm saying I'm smarter than even though they're calling me ugly, which doesn't really matter. Um, I'm like pointing out. I can't explain it. That was one of the first times I understood privilege because I recognised that n most people don't have a very large vocabulary and and to use it in a way which just politicians do to kind of fuddle you and make you feel confused is cruel. It's it's basically making you feel like you're stupid when you're not because. Do, do you understand what I'm saying? You, uh, do I understand? No, do, do you understand what I'm saying? <laughs> no, I didn't mean that. Uh, no, because you use simpler, shorter language. For no. Me. no, 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 I'm joking. Um, yeah, I Don't. do. <laughs> Never going to be invited here again. <laughs> no, you definitely will. You were on twice. I have, yeah, yeah. <laughs> ding, ding. Uh, I think, yeah, like, it is, it's, it's difficult because we feel that we do have to defend ourselves because like we're all forward-facing people right and people are we're living in a time where people are wanting to tell us constantly that we're wrong and that we're incomplete and that we're hideous and they use such violent language I don't I don't know how many people are on your block lists but on my block list there's like a huge wave of people that want me dead or just want to talk about when I will be dying tomorrow from diabetes or when I will die because they're going to violently attack me it's this constant threat of death that is used that has just become so normalized that like who do you report that to mm. apart from pressing the report button and they go oh yeah delete them i mean that's all it does it doesn't solve any of the mm. stuff um mm. Well, that was nice and light and cheery. No, but what do you think? Because I think it's interesting to pick apart the hatred and trolling. It's really fascinating. And when we talk around fatness and health and this idea of, like, health worrying, when people go, oh, I'm worried about you because you're fat and, like, I don't want you to die. Like, that kind of microaggression mm. is really ironic because I said before, like, if I'm having a cigarette outside, no one really cares. Mm -hmm. So they don't really care about your health. It's, like... it's First of all, I think it's virtue signaling. We were talking about it a bit earlier. I think when someone pushes back on something you do, I think it's almost just pointing out the fact that they know it just for a bit of their own gravitas. But also I think it's because people are scared to deviate from the norm. So if you're a person, and Sophie talks about this in Happy Fat, but if you're a person that's happy being you, doing something that you're not supposed to do, other people want to t attack you and take you down because it makes them feel uncomfortable because they recognise that they're subscribing to this formula and you're not and you're fine and that can, and I do understand that because I think I felt that way before I'd be like why are they happy doing that and it makes you feel do you know what? so I think it does come from a place of like I just think it's really it's fucking awful that people want you to die first of all but I also think that they obviously have not got to a point where they you know remotely who they are but it's the really clumsy confused headspace of being of um uh, a forward-facing fat person where people are like predicting your death on one side um and say you will die tomorrow you are going to die by this age you will be dead 
like they know that they're some soothsayer, like, you know, like let's tap into those skills because like we may be able to solve some of the other shit because they can see into the future, right? <laughs> yeah. So we've got deaf here and then a whole bunch of other people that want to keep me alive. I'm only telling you this because I want, you know, I want you to, I want you to lose weight because I want you to live. I just want to do it for your health. Like there's just this obsession with me either dying or being alive forever. <laughs> and I just I want to do the middle bit of living. If that's okay. And the irony with the health thing is as well, like one of the biggest um, problems against health is class and inequality. So actually, really, it'd be more helpful if we all just vote Labour. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I just did a vote. Okay. Because uh, I, do, I do think this is really interesting. When, when you're coming up against people talking to you about... I mean, I definitely think that I probably get the least worst comments than, than you guys in terms of my trolling. Like my trolling really isn't that bad. I don't think the worst I used to get was loads of dick pics. And even I don't get those anymore, so I don't know what I'm doing wrong. But <laughs> <laughs> I used to get so many. So my block list was all just men sending me dick pics yeah. and now I get none. I'm actually slightly worried. <laughs> what does this say? I've also never had a fanny pic, so. But I just think the women are better than that. Anyway, um, so back to trolling. So when, when you're putting yourself out there unapologetically, which is what we all do, I think, it does open you up. Mm. And I don't think that should be the way. But what do you think about, you know, when people are like, oh, well, they wanted to be, they wanted this, they wanted this fame. And like, what, do you think that attitude needs to change? Or do you think there is some level of truth in that if you put yourself up in, on a pedestal and to talk, not on a pedestal, that's the wrong terminology, but do you think there should be some room for... No, actually, trolling's just not okay, is it? No, it's like, if, if you Sorry. go... <laughs> just realise! If you go onto someone's page to troll them, I just don't think... You, you ain't got a leg to stand on. You're on their page. You're on their territory. Yeah. Like, fuck off, that's it. If you don't like it, go somewhere else. I just don't understand when people go into other people's spaces and say mean stuff. Mm. You don't have to be there, so just leave. I think there's also um, a cultural thing of like, we enjoy leaving negative. Now I found this out because I did it myself, prime example. So I listen to loads of podcasts all the time that I love and I've never once reviewed one. I've never written, even though I make you guys all the time, sorry. Um, <laughs> but I listened to one and they basically said that structural racism wasn't real. And I could, before I could even think I'd written a, this is awful, one star, I can't believe you said this, really angry and DM'd both hosts and then deleted it, felt really embarrassed but couldn't delete the review, which was quite long. And it, I thought I'd put a pseudonym, but it was just my name. So you might find it. Anyway, I realised that feeling annoyed or angry, even though that is a ridiculous thing to say, and I don't disagree with what I said, it just realised that feeling, negative feelings promote reaction more than positive. And I think culturally, as British people especially, we really enjoy having a bit of a nag and being a bit critical. Whereas I think, I don't know, but I hear that in America, I mean, I know it's not great over there at the minute, but I do hear that they have a bit more of a positive, I think they're better at bringing people up and cheering people on. I think even within our friendship, sometimes we find it a bit hard to be like, oh, you did really well. It's a bit like, yeah, it was, it was good. Do you, did, did you feel that attitude? Didn't we have like, very briefly, like a good news newspaper? There's a woman that does it, I can't remember her name, but I follow her on Instagram. Does it still exist? Yeah, I think so. Okay, right. Well, good. Good. What's I'm glad this? it does. Because I was gonna there's like a good news newspaper which only like sell it like shares like good news. Oh. And it was very it seemed to be really prolific and everywhere. Yeah. And then all of a sudden not. And I thought, is this a sign of is this does, <laughs> is this an analogy for what's going on in, in the world? I really like there's a publication called Happy Fall as well, which looks at mental health and well-being that kind of is in a sort of sort of similar ilk. Um, but again, I, I, with, same with gender, I get myself into these like loops and these mazes and find mm. dead ends because I think 
sometimes I have got the emotional labor to put up with other people's bullshit. And I'm aware that if I put myself on the South Bank main stage, that some people aren't are going to go disagree. Um, and so I kind of do invite some conversation. It's the death threats that I'm not down with. Yeah. Mm. Like, why have we lost the ability to be able to have a conversation with each other and go, oh, do you know what? I disagree, but you're still a lovely person. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, obviously, like, I, I was like, if you go on someone's page, you can just fuck off. But <laughs> obviously, we need to have conversations about certain things and we need to be open about having conversations. But I just don't think people need to go as far as that. And if you're not open to a conversation and you just want to come and say something nasty and it's not going to be productive, then don't say anything at all. Yeah. Unless you want to have a conversation and you're willing to learn from the conversation and listen to each other, then I think it's just, like, irrelevant you even speaking. I think what sometimes happens on social media is we're talking about how everything's going really badly, but actually if you think about how far we've come, like some of the conversations we're having today would be seen as radical 10 years ago, wouldn't they? So that's like a positive thing. And I think what happens on social media sometimes with the really, not the death threats, but the criticism that seems quite unfounded is some of the things that we say, which we think are so normal, someone might read that and think, I have never, I don't even know what does, what does non-binary mean? Mm. What does this mean? Mm. And I think it's that, there's so much polarisation on social media. And I think, as you say, if there was more conversation in the middle, but I don't know how we knit those groups together. But Yeah, I think it's really important, though, that we acknowledge that there is an echo chamber around us. Yeah. Because actually, like, a really interesting and sort of a slightly hurtful and sad thing that I saw from the leaders' debate that was between Corbyn and Johnson. I was like, who's the other one? <laughs> Boris Johnson. Uh, on Channel 4 that happened was that Jeremy Corbyn said, climate change is a real thing. It's going to affect the most poor in our societies. And a huge proportion of the audience went, oh, Oh, here he goes again. And I thought, oh, no, hang on. I believe that to be the actual truth mm. through a lot of, like, time that I spent reading. But that retaliation from an audience just to be like, oh, wacky ideas from this one who's a vegetarian. <laughs> like, do you, like mm. I remember when Corbyn first, like, started to become, like, a prolific, um, more forward-facing person within the Labour Party. And the press were like gets on a bike and is a vegetarian and his wife doesn't want anything to do with politics. Strange. <laughs> and that reminds me, actually, that, yeah, we can have these spaces to have these conversations. And that's not to say that everyone in this room, like, totally is signed up to everything that we've talked about. Mm. But I do think that, that, that these conversations have got to get bigger and wider. Yeah. I actually want to ask you, because I've remembered um, something that happened on Twitter as well. So, I don't know when it was, but there was a working-class man, and you tweeted about it, and I was, like, really interesting to see this debate. A working-class man basically said... I can't remember who was talking. Do you know the tweet where he was like, I earn in the top tax bracket, but that's not 5% of the people. Mm. And I don't want to be taxed more. Now, what quite clearly was happening was he couldn't believe that he was in the top 5% because I didn't even understand this. Like, I don't earn 8K a year, but I, I didn't really realise how the distribution of wealth worked or how many people there are in the... Yeah, it really is so, 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 so few people that are in that tax bracket. And what you pointed out is that this is a working class man that's worked really, really hard. Do I need to explain it more? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. So it was it was just, there was a lack of nuance and also a lack of empathy. So I actually watched that and felt quite sorry that they hadn't gone to him like, sorry, just to reiterate, what you're saying is that you don't realise. And I found that really cold. And then lots of the retweets were like taking the piss out of this guy. Mm. And actually I was like, no, this conversation is so much more nuanced than the rich and the poor, Labour and Tories. It's like we've, class as well, it's not, you can kind of move, I think this is a weird thing for people that move from different classes or different money brackets, class is a feeling, not necessarily a wealth thing, much like poshness, 
doesn't have to be related to wealth. It can be to do with your like cultural upbringing. And I, do you know what I mean? I know they yeah. are related, but yeah, they yeah. can... I think class is really difficult because we, mm. we can't pin it in the same way that we can with other things. Um, but yeah, what I, what I got from that was um, a working class Tory, which is, uh, I thought it was an oxymoron, but it's actually a real thing. I live in Essex. It's got very working class Tory following. And what I've kind of, through conversations with folk, realised it's about protectionism. If people have come from nothing and worked mm. for something, um, and that guy really was a very honest, retaliation and he was right because it was fact-checked he's not in the top five percent he needs to earn a thousand pounds more i believe to be in the top five percent <laughs> um and I, yeah i think it's around that idea of like i wonder what that would happen if, uh, that conversation would look like if it was uh, approached with empathy mm. and a bit like oh okay well let's try and take the sting out of this and listen and hear each other yeah i think that that's something which is interesting because I think on social media I find this like something with the most bite is what people really want to get into like nuance isn't very interesting nuance takes an hour and a half to talk about so I love podcasting I've never understood short form things because I feel like you can't get into the meat of it and I think that with social media and the way that we take in information and even the fact that people work so long and our lives are so busy and we're going around our interactions with other humans literally aren't long enough to even get to the point of saying like how are you today and we feel like we can just say fine and that's the end of the conversation, which brings us on to mental health. I hope you enjoyed part one of why we should stop apologising. It was recorded at the Boulevard Theatre in Soho and we had around 150 people there. So it was an incredible evening and I'm so grateful for Scotty and Shark coming along. Part two, I will release as soon as possible. And I will also be releasing new dates for live podcasts in the new year. So keep your eyes peeled on my Instagram page and I'll hopefully announce on here too. Bye. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier, all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.